0: So, okay, what are our ambitions today? So first thing I'm going to do is um, summarize for you uh, a specific, uh, here's, your, here's your vocab word for the day, hermeneutic for reading scripture. Now, what is a hermeneutic? A hermeneutic is, uh, you know, last week we talked about interpretive lenses. A hermeneutic is one of those interpretive lenses that we're going to put on uh, for reading scripture. And then our hope, our intention, uh, is to actually start to tackle some of those difficult, tricky, um, problematic, you know, Bible bomb passages and see, uh, if the, either the hermeneutic I go through today or other ones can help us diffuse them so we can start moving towards a, a more joy-filled relationship with reading scripture, um, uh, you know it was brought up last week that you know we can we can talk for ages about all the ways that scripture has been used to harm maim kill injure uh the list is quite long and it is good to name that and to be honest about it uh but it, we're also we're not just here for that we're also here to um read the bible for liberation to read it for constructive purposes to read it not like a jackass uh let's not Uh, allow the the villains of scripture hermeneutics and interpretation to have the uh, last say Uh, anything else you want to say by way of introduction to neta
1: no i think that was a good summary
0: all right let's uh invite god's presence to uh intend over us and we'll dive in good gracious all-loving ever-present Transcendent and yet so close, so imminent, so with us, God. We thank you for the fact that you've built a table wide enough and long enough and round enough for all of us. And as we pull up a seat to feast on the treasures of your word and on the glory of your truth, God, we ask that we might be attentive to what you're doing that our spirits might, like a, like a tuning fork, reverberate with the music that you are making, and that our minds and our souls and our bodies, God, might know freedom from the words that you say today. So use Tanetta and I uh, to speak something true and essential. And God, may the collective wisdom of this room uh may we come ever closer to you and love that is at the center of the universe, holding all things together, we pray these things in christ's name. Amen all right so let's uh i'm gonna just walk us through a very simple outline. This will not take long, I promise uh and then we'll have some discussion around it uh so let me launch my slides. Okay. All right. So this, uh, specifically what I'm summarizing is something that's been super influential for me. Uh, and this is Greg Boyd's cruciform hermeneutic. Okay. So cruciform meaning, uh, formed by the cross or the crucifixion, uh, and hermeneutic being an interpretive lens. And Greg Boyd wrote this two volume, 1400 page, uh, super book, called Crucifixion of the Warrior God, uh, which was basically trying to understand, okay, what on earth do we do with all of these violent, bloodthirsty depictions of God in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament? And, you know, this is a perennial question. Uh, We aren't the first ones to ask it this year. Uh, Christians aren't the first ones to ask it this millennia. Uh, Jews have been wrestling with this for a long time as well because— yeah, if you are honest with the depictions uh, of of the Hebrew Scripture, of Joshua, of Judges, of, uh, you know, also the Psalms and the prophets and throughout, uh, there are these depictions of God that are in the least problematic and, you know, at the very most, absolutely horrific. So, Boyd is this—he's uh, a pastor, he's an academic, and he's a committed Christian, and he's trying to figure out, okay, the God that I know— uh, he, moreover, he's also an Anabaptist. Uh, he's, um, so he's, de- he's dedicated to pacifism and peace, uh, and peacemaking and nonviolence. Uh, so Boyd is asking himself, okay, if the God that I know is the God revealed in Jesus, uh, who also seemed to lean towards peacemaking and nonviolence, how do I make sense of the God revealed in the old Testament? So here is a summary, summary, of his, of his argument. Number one, Christ is the complete and perfect revelation of the character of God. So you can find this throughout uh, the New Testament. This is what Christians believed about Jesus and the the claim that they're making. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but, so contrast word, but In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So point of contrast. Yes, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but now the exact representation of God, God's self has shown up in the person of Jesus. And so early Christians the first Christians claimed that in Jesus we were seen the perfect representation of God's character. All right? All right. So, next. The more specifically, Boyd wants to argue that the divine character is most fully revealed in the crucifixion. Now, before anybody gets their theological uh, panties in a twist, uh, Boyd does not ignore the resurrection, and the resurrection is absolutely crucial for Boyd. But Boyd's point is that we see this character, this divine character, most clearly in the, in the crucifixion, in the fact that God, in the flesh, uh, went to such lengths for humanity as to be tortured and die— So Philippians 2, talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his, Jesus' own advantage. Rather, Jesus, and this is called the kenotic hymn, Uh, kenosis is this idea of emptying himself, made himself nothing. Uh, This is, by the way, a massive part of my own theology of understanding God. Uh, So Jesus kenosis himself made himself nothing, emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not use Godship as a reason to be self-seeking or self-serving, which has implications for how we think about worship and all of that. Um, but being in the very nature of God, Jesus emptied, kenosist, made himself nothing to the point of death. So Jesus reveals God's character. God's character is most fully revealed in the crucifixion. Okay, big point right here. Humans did not always have a complete revelation of God's character, but this is the Christian claim in Jesus, now we do. Okay, and so this is the idea of progressive revelation that humans. People encountering God have grown in their understanding of God. So the people writing Genesis did not know as much about God as the people writing Matthew. The people experiencing God, even Moses on Mount Sinai, was not experiencing the complete revelation of God in the way that the people experiencing Jesus were. Brian Zond, a pastor and writer, puts it like this, God is like Jesus, God has always been like Jesus. It's not like the God of the Old Testament got therapy and came out as Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. So this is the Christian claim about what the magnitude of what Jesus is doing, is revealing fully what God is like. Okay, there's more to go, but let me pause there and see if there's any questions so far
2: i feel like something that i something that i think about with this sort of idea is how it how to think of it in a way that doesn't get uh supersessionists at the word where we like dismiss uh wish thought and sort of you know in, in that understanding of like christianity grew out of judaism and how do we make sure that we're not just sort of throwing away um sort of what they've been saying and saying like, oh no, no, but but we know better. Um so maybe that's um yeah, I would love to to hear some of your thoughts
1: around that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh the book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, has a whole appendix dedicated to supersessionism and claims of anti-Semitism. Um I like the way Brad Jerzak uh talks about this because he has a similar approach, uh, which is the reminder that Christianity, uh, has at its heart, a Jewish Messiah has as its first intellectual arguer of the faith, uh, Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Jews. Um, the original disciples were all Jewish folks. And this of course is the big theological crisis of the first century is that a whole bunch of Jews worshiping a Jewish Messiah who they understand to be divine, uh, are failing to convince their fellow kin. Um, so you know there I, I i am not shy about the fact that we we are making a truth claim here uh christians are making a truth claim about the character or the nature of jesus um that will of course go against the truth claims of uh others particularly jews who do not see jesus as divine or see that even see that even as like blasphemous um and yeah it is it is one truth claim pitted against another for sure are there you know, are there ways of doing that that are uh, more jackass than others? Yes, absolutely there are. Um, but yeah, I'm not shy about the fact that this this is making a truth claim about the character of Jesus. Donetta,
1: Yeah, and I would say, um, Anthony and I chatted a, a little bit about some of this uh, early in the week because I love, love the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so like, I definitely, like there are so many um like some of the oldest parts of, of the New Testament are those kind of almost creedal statements, like the ones that, and that he put up, the Philippians and, and uh, there's one in Colossians uh, and you know, the Hebrews statement about God, uh, represent God as, you know, or Jesus as the fullest representation of God. And I think what always scares me is that um, often that has meant that sometimes Christians don't engage what is like 70% of the Bible. Uh, I mean, the majority of the Bible is this, is that part of it. So I think finding a middle place to also acknowledge it doesn't mean there's not good news in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't mean that there's no revelation of God in the Hebrew Bible. And I think there's a lot of issues with like people kind of like, yeah, I, I totally agree. Fullest revelation in Jesus. That is how we read all of scripture. And that does not mean that there is not good news there um, that our that our Jewish siblings are also seeing and that we can lay kind of claim but kind of not claim but um lay hold of uh, so i would I would add that
0: yeah that 's really really good and yeah the the point of a good hermeneutic is that it ought to allow you to be able to read the totality of scripture uh and get something worthwhile um, out of it rather than if your hermeneutic is only allowing you to read a slim part of Scripture, then it's maybe failing as a good hermeneutic. Um, the, la- the, the last thing I'll say to your question, Meg, which is just a great and important question, is um, you know, the whole idea of progressive revelation or um, having more full understandings of God is not a uniquely Christian idea. And reading Jewish commentary, uh, you will see that they they wrestle with these sorts of things as well. Now, they don't have a Embodied Messiah figure, like Christians do, to focus their interpretation on um but they are also willing and able and do all the time admit um well, okay, uh this is a bit of a tangent, but um, after the exile before and during the time of Jesus, there was a movement in Jewish interpretation uh to see the character who delivered the Torah to Moses not as God, God self, but as rather a messenger or angel of God. Um, and there is this desire to somewhat distance the uh, character of the person on Mount Sinai, the divine character on Mount Sinai, from the thing that we actually call God. And they did this for a couple of reasons. One was out of uh, a typically Jewish uh, sensibility to not... Um, do anything or say anything about God that may make god um, that may make God an idol, uh, so no god can 't actually show up in thunder and lightning on a mountain that would make god uh, that would be an image of God, and we can 't do that, uh, but there was also some interpretive movements in like some of the early rabbinical stuff of yes, the angel or messenger of God on Mount Sinai uh, had some stuff to say to Moses. Um, but there, that wasn't all, and that wasn't the end, that wasn't the final word. And so that's when you get into oral law and um, the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are commentaries on commentaries about the Torah. So, yeah, we're not doing, Christians aren't, <laughs> they aren't doing anything that the Jews haven't done for 100 years before them. <laughs> all right, we'll keep going, let's finish this argument. Okay, so the perfect revelation of the divine Embodied in the human Jesus, allowed himself to be marred, whipped, and pierced by humans in the crucifixion or at the crucifixion. So basically, Boyd is pointing out this perfect image of God in the person of Jesus was changed by humans, was physically altered by humans. Uh, And sometimes for the worse, particularly in the crucifixion, that when you're getting spit upon, whipped and pierced and crucified, um, you are being changed by other people for the worse. All right. So this is an important point for Boyd, because if this is true of the person of God, why couldn't it be true for the Bible as well? So that's our next point. Uh, the crucifixion simultaneously both marred the image of God as embodied in the person of Jesus and revealed the depth of the loving divine character. So the crucifixion is doing two things. It is physically hurting Jesus. It's ruining the skin, the flesh, and bones of Jesus. It's doing bad stuff to the body of Jesus. But in doing so, it's actually showing us something Deeply true and beautiful about the divine character that God would go to such lengths, experience such depths of pain, turmoil, despair in order to accomplish salvation for humans. So these two things are true at the same time. Jesus's body is being ruined, physically altered, and marred by humans, and in so doing, is revealing something true and beautiful about the divine character. Similarly, Boyd argues, human authors were allowed to mar God's character in their written records of God's interactions with humanity. So Boyd argues, if the body of Jesus, the God in the flesh, is able to be altered for the worse by people, then why would this not be true of the Bible, of the written records of God as well? To reiterate, because the complete revelation of God did not come until the divine was enfleshed in Jesus, human authors prior to Jesus, while having real, honest encounters with God, we're not denying that, they did not have the complete picture of what God was like and therefore got some things wrong. All right, so now we're pushing up against the bounds of what you may have been comfortable with in terms of understanding the inerrancy and what the Bible is. Is the Bible—this is Boyd arguing—is the Bible a perfect record of God's character? No. God entrusted human authors to talk about their experience, write about their experiences with God. And there are some honest-to-goodness revelations about God in those stories that they did not have the complete picture. And if we take the claim of Jesus seriously— that Jesus is the full and complete revelation of God, then that must mean that people prior to Jesus didn't have access to that complete revelation and therefore got some things wrong. Therefore, just as human agents harmed Jesus' body, human authors also gave imperfect accounts of God's character and actions in the world. This, however, does not detract from the inspired or God-breathed nature of the Bible, Boyd argues. Just as the crucifixion more fully revealed the depth of God's, uh, God's character, so does God's willingness to allow human authors to write about God, sometimes well and sometimes poorly, speak to God's willingness to accommodate human imperfection. So we learn something about God, in the fact that God is willing to allow imperfect people to write imperfectly about God's self, that must mean that God is not the sorts of person who is always going to be like, hey, you got something about me wrong. I'm really concerned about that. Please stop. To be explicit, sometimes biblical authors got it wrong. But God, who is not self-serving or anxious, used those even imperfect retellings to move humanity closer to a more complete understanding of the divine character. All right. That's, that's the end of the argument. All right. How we doing?
2: Wow. Never heard, heard that before. That's wow. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Yeah. yeah. How does it strike you? It's a lot to take in. So if, if you're not, you know, how does it strike you? <laughs>
2: Yeah, the logic the logic flows. So, um, yeah, I'll have to. You know, I'm sure you'll guide us more into implications and and you know, sure.
0: what with that. But yeah, does it make you squirmy? Not too squirmy. So okay. Thank you. Anybody else?
1: Yeah, I have a question. I have not read *Crucifixion of the Warrior God*. What um, th- does Boyd deal with? Um, kind of post Jesus writers who also like in kind of their lenses? Because in one of the quotes, it seemed like it was very much pre-Jesus writers. And then like, how does he deal with kind of texts that are post-Jesus? But but also he would say, hmm, let's maybe ask some questions about divorce or, you know, some of some of the things that come up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Boyd does deal with yeah, Boyd is not making the claim that once the anybody encountered Jesus or once Jesus showed up on the scene, therefore all writings are uh, absolutely inerrant and imperfect. He does not, you know, kind of make that argument uh, because it's still humans writing it and still humans writing based off of their human experience with the complete revelation of God as seen in Jesus. Uh, So there is still interpretive work to be done. Um that if we encounter an image in the New Testament um of something that seems against the character of Jesus as revealed in the cross, a little violent, a little bloodthirsty when Paul writes uh about the agitators in Galatia, I wish that they would go emasculate themselves that wasn't paul's most christ like moment now it's in the Bible, good for you paul you you, you did it, you achieved your goals. Uh, but, (laughs) but, uh, that doesn't mean that that is a perfect example of what, you know, Jesus wanted for Paul at the moment. Um, but again, I think Boyd would argue that this still tells us something about the character of God, that God allows imperfect, impetuous and angry people even like Paul, um, to be able to guide communities of faith. And then, you know, obviously once you get past the first century and the, um, into the patristics and uh, other writers, um, yeah. There's more and more and more and more of a chance, uh, a likelihood that people are are going to misuse, misunderstand uh, Jesus. Skylar, you were going to say something.
3: Oh yeah, I was just going to say that this, like so many other things we've been studying, and you know, I think the table's general approach of uh, being thoughtful, um, academic in a good way, progressive. This is great because. It takes away, so many people have a binary understanding, either either the wrathful God of the Old Testament is real or it's not, there's nothing in between, and I can't reconcile it, so I'm just going to ditch it. Um, you know, that, that science is the opposite of the Bible or an antithesis or something, and, and I don't really believe any of that, but my point is this is great because even though there's plenty of questions, plenty of mystery, the idea here, which I'm on board with and, and maybe even uh, I'm warming up to just flat out agreeing with, is it can be taken to all the other things we're studying and our faith in general, just this idea that mysteries can be reconciled even if it takes a while to sort out all the details. This this just isn't a binary system. You take it or leave it. There's lots of nuances. So I guess (laughs) that was my point.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. All right, other thoughts, questions before we move forward? All right, Tanetta, are you prepared to lead us through some implications yeah. or alternative hermeneutics
1: yeah um well and let me ask you so what are, one of the things i wanted to do is talk about a hermeneutic of liberation and then get into some texts yeah. um i don't and i feel like we can uh, apply um kind of a cruciform uh hermeneutic and a liberation hermeneutic and just kind of talk that out a little bit yeah um does that sound good okay all right um, okay, so yeah, I don't have a lot in terms of um, setup. That was an amazing setup, Pastor <laughs> um, So um, I just wanted to talk about um, kind of the hermeneutic, this interpretive method um, that comes out of seeing God fundamentally as about liberation in the world. Um, the first thing to name about that is that it is definitely grounded in the experience, Uh, and you'll notice this, like if you look at womanist theologians or uh, liberation theologians, they are talking very openly about their experience in terms of getting to their hermeneutic, so these experiences of very real oppression in various places of the world um, have formed this particular view of how to read scripture. Um, So the first thing I would say, and we can look at uh some texts if if we have bibles uh, i didn't put anything in a powerpoint so the first one uh, that's a touchstone for this particular way of viewing scripture is exodus 3 7 through 14 which uh, i think pastor anthony is actually going to be preaching on in just a couple of weeks so i'm gonna just pull that up and i will read it um and the essential argument here is, is basically that at the moment in this touchstone experience of uh, for, for the Hebrew people who become the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, when God discloses God's self, it is as a God of liberation. It is because of liberation. It is in response to a desire for liberation. So this is Exodus 3, 7 through 14. The Lord said... I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So that key idea that God hears those who suffer, God uh, sees those who suffer, and then God responds. Verse eight starts, so I have come down. Uh, So that is one of the most important elements of this hermeneutic of liberation that God fundamentally responds um, to situations of oppression. And then if you just skip down, uh, that chapter is the same chapter in which God reveals God's God's name, right? So you get the verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So again, the touchstone event, in this hermeneutic is the Exodus, or it's one of them. It's like one of two or three, uh, that God discloses the revelation of God is tied to God's liberating work, and you cannot pull those apart. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, I-, I talked about this this morning, Exodus 22, the 10 commandments, same thing, right? You get this very clear, this covenant um, that God establishes with this people who have now been freed, is very much grounded again. in God is like, my authority to make this covenant comes out of my liberating work that I have done among you. So again, that's a touchstone for the way um, that people with this lens talk about liberation. And then the other kind of touchstone that's in um, a couple of things I could say in the New Testament, but I'm going to point to Luke if we could go there four. So that's kind of the, if you want to ground it, in a different place, uh, this is kind of the other place folks go to. So, Luke four uh, contains what often people call Jesus's inaugural sermon. Um, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture, and it deeply affects how I think about Jesus. Um, so, it is Luke four. It starts. Uh, we can start at verse eighteen, really. So, as soon as Jesus goes into the into the uh, into the synagogue, opens the scroll, and reads. Uh, and he says, and he he kind of does a little mid he he does a little um, turning of the scripture um, that's found in Isaiah, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there's been like a lot of research on this text, and essentially is such, it's so key to thinking about both how God is at work, how Jesus is is all about both the physical, like, you know, like literally this is the poor and it is folks who are, you know, poor in spirit and folks who are, uh, you know, captive when we think about that spiritually. So you see both sides of that here. And then that last phrase is also really important in verse 19 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is about this kind of like jubilee, Again, which is about kind of liberation in terms of economics, in terms of, you know, people held in bondage, released from debt, return of land. And Jesus is saying, in me, those things are fulfilled. Um, so you get this, this also as a touchstone of this hermeneutic of liberation. I'll also say that I think one reason I'm drawn to it uh, when I think about scripture is that i think it fits really well with the hebrew understanding of the self where you know we tend to follow like a more greek understanding of the self, when we talk about soul and body and soul is always higher than body and we talk about mind and body and mind is always higher than the body um, but like if you in the hebrew world view that was not the case people were much more whole whole beings that were not split and so when you talk about a hermeneutic of liberation that you know what God is about in the world is both. It's all of the things. It can't just be something that is spiritual, and that's something that is really well accounted for in this way of reading scripture. Uh, and then I would also say I think it fits really well um, with the reality that in the Hebrew world, and it I mean, not just the Hebrew world, but even as you go forward, uh, you get you know kind of a Christian church emerging in the New Testament. There was they didn't this this idea of like what we would call separation of church and state is not something is not a way that they are like viewing the world so again I think our hermeneutic of liberation does a good job of bringing us back to this reality um that those two things are not separate like we're not separate beings uh and that the way in which God is addressing people is not as if like there's this one category of life that God is thinking about it is all of life uh and I think it, it counts well for that so I have two um passages. Um, So we can start with uh, the first one, um, which is Genesis. We can start Hebrew Bible and then go um, into the New Testament. So both of these are hard. Uh, I mentioned earlier the entity. I have not solved these. These are both texts that I have preached on. They are not easy, but I thought it would be interesting to take some time to really like explore them, see what you come up with, and then think about how a cruciform um, hermeneutic applies and then a liberation hermeneutic. Spoiler alert, alert they have very similar <laughs> you're gonna find overlap, right? But um, let, let's talk that through. So let's go to Genesis 16. And I think maybe we should do some smaller groups. Um, I think maybe some breakouts would be good here of maybe uh, three, three, is that right?
0: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: All right, so Genesis 16. How would you apply a hermeneutic of liberation or a hermeneutic um, that is cruciform? So, this is the story of Hagar. There are really two uh, accountings of this story, Um, but it's about Hagar, who's this um, enslaved woman in the household of Abraham, who's a patriarch in Egypt uh, and is. I don't want to put anything on the story I would say mistreated okay to say the least so then how do we think about this using these hermeneutics? so I think I'm how about in your rooms um one person just kind of read it through I would advocate a good strong pause after that to allow people to just kind of like breathe it in read through it again themselves all that stuff and then talk through like what might Uh, be revealed by this text using these hermeneutics
0: anybody have any questions or need to be reminded about what each hermeneutic is
4: sorry can you clarify the verses one more time starting at the beginning of genesis 16 how far are we going
0: the whole chapter
4: Uh, the whole thing okay cool perfect
1: think we just go right in (laughs)
4: yeah
0: (laughs) okay should we do 15 minutes yeah
1: that sounds
0: good okay all right welcome back everybody Tanetta, you look disappointed.
1: Oh, we were just we were just warming up. <laughs> but you know, I, I know everybody else solved it. So I'm I'm excited. Yeah, to I'm to
0: excited hear. to hear too. So I learned a long time ago teaching a class to not go into the breakout rooms. Uh because inevitably something goes wrong in Zoom land, and then like it's hard to fix. So I never I never I don't get to be part of the discussion. So please tell me how you solved Genesis. Or you know, yeah, how does all
1: apply? We had some good conversation in general about the uh, the the hermeneutic of liberation versus the cruciform um, lens. So I'm curious, what did people come up with looking at? And at, this is a difficult text. So, what but but what did y'all come up with as you process through how those two might apply here and what they might mean for how we read this piece of scripture?
0: Or did you just make bets on the Super Bowl? <laughs>
2: Um oh I I can uh share a little bit. We talked in, in our group about how um thinking from the sort of liberation standpoint, like it is clearly Hagar, you know, we're we're led to the idea that she feels seen and and understood. Um and she receives the promise that, you know, her, her descendants will be numerous. Um but the idea that it's, it's really hard to reconcile God telling her to go back to, um, you know, I, I sort of named like certainly at least an abusive relationship, if not like one where she is a a victim of, of sexual assault and rape. Um, And so that sort of felt really challenging. And, and the idea that you know, yes, there is a a promise of your descendants will be very numerous, but also then, you know, the description of who Ishmael will be is not positive, you know, that, that he will sort of be always in, in hostility. Um, yeah, that it's, it's really hard to sort of understand the concept. And, and we sort of know that Jesus represents and shows us a God who would not send you back to your abusers. Um, and that, that that was sort of one one angle that we, we talked about.
1: Uh, we had the same discussion in our room, too. Um, I'll share that thought. And then I was thinking, if you switch kind of to a, a cruciform perspective, um, that we did discuss how Jesus you know, humbled himself, came to earth, and humbled himself on the cross, and that maybe God is kind of asking Hagar to humble herself for whatever reason and going back that, like, I wouldn't understand why exactly, but um, but that action did remind me of a Christ-like
5: action. Our group landed there, too, and we sort of, right as it was switching back, kind of ended in this place of, like, how difficult that is, even in, like, a moment of, like, like, you could read it from that lens, but that isn't something that I think anybody here would ever say to someone who's just suffered through Assault and rape and terrible things, terrible misuse and mistrust, but I don't think the fur like I would hope I know I wouldn't say to Hagar, Oh, you should just be more like Christ, like take up your cross like especially because i'm yeah, formerly Catholic, so I heard that a lot like uh and so yeah and it's there's a real rub when reading this one through like cruciform that it, there there seems to be like a, a big uh, a big gap there
4: something I thought about when that we kind of landed on towards the end is like what would freedom look like for Hagar like she is a woman outside of her homeland who is pregnant without a father present who is an escaped they keep saying servant escaped slave really and like what would freedom actually look like for a woman in that world like is that freedom at all or is freedom knowing there's a plan for you in the suffering one way or another, because either way it would be suffering. Her entire life would be suffering from that point, regardless of whether or not she continued out into the wilderness.
1: Yeah. all this is is so good. And I would name one of the benefits of thinking through your own hermeneutic and as a Christian applying, you know, essentially reading all scripture through Christ is that it does allow you to say what some of you said, that God would not say, go back, right? Like it avoid God talking to a person that is probably not what we think Jesus would do. And it also allows us to step back and say, but culturally, I can understand, this is similar what you, to what you said, Al, that yes, there's a good chance that Hagar could could not experience liberation if she went back in that moment. There's a good chance that only like, in this promise of her son, who is totally free in the wilderness, will she be able to experience liberation? So you can say both of those things. And that's the beauty of having a strong framework is that you can do both of those and say, yes, uh, a hermeneutic of liberation is gonna, is gonna note that this woman's position now, like her, her uh, social position, she's Egyptian and she's a an enslaved person. And we have to take seriously that she's the first person in, in, in the Bible to name God when she says, you are the God who sees. Like, because of that, we, we pay attention to that. And again, we don't have to reconcile it. Um, and I would say, I was fascinated by Chris's comment because I think, and this is going to go somewhere else that we don't necessarily have to go today. But, I, and I don't know if Anthony, you have thoughts about this, but I, I think it is true that those, like, like particularly when we read the Hebrew Bible, what happens when so many of us you know, have been taught, like obviously Jesus is crucified, and you know, in some ways that has been used to justify unjust suffering. Has been used to like there's like a, a, myth, a myth, essentially, of redemptive violence that I think perhaps even a person who's trying to read this in light of Christ could say, "Well, Christ suffered." Like I would I really appreciate it, Chris, bringing that up because I think it's it it is an interesting thing to note um, that even. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know
0: what you would say about that, Anthony, but it, but it yeah. Yeah, right. Like, uh, I think a poor, I mean, this is my problem with um, penal models of, of atonement, of uh, a poor reading of the cross is, Jesus suffered, therefore you should too. Um, where rather it should be, Jesus, who was the embodiment of love, was put to death by the powers, To shame the powers, to show us their ridiculousness, and to the extent that they will attempt to overthrow divine love, and to free us from fear of the powers, therefore don't, and then you should suffer too, but rather any form of suffering is evil and wrong and uh, is a chain that should be broken. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's why you need, like, both cruciform and liberation views here, uh, because, yeah, it can very easily turn into, you know, understanding Jesus as others-oriented, self-giving, self-sacrificial love uh, as a model to follow uh, does not equal, therefore, be a doormat to be walked on. Um, there's so many, like, so so many things to bring out uh, from this passage, too. Uh, Because you've got Sarah, the OG Israelite, harming Hagar, the Egyptian. In fact, uh, Genesis 16, 6, uh, Sarah mistreated or afflicted Hagar is the exact same word that's used in Exodus chapter 1 to talk about the Egyptians afflicting the Israelites. So there is like, and it's heady stuff. But there is some interesting political commentary going on right now about the relationship between slavery and oppression and who is oppressing who and who gets the right. But scripture, to me, other than our like super problematic verse, verse nine, go back to your mistress and submit, is siding with Hagar of, hey, hey, Sarah, Sarah, the thing that you've done is exactly what's going to happen to your family in 400 years. Um or for four hundred years. Hey Hagar, the Egyptian, the you know in the Israelite imagination, reading this after the Exodus, the oppressor, Hagar is the one who gets to give a name to the Almighty God, the only wo- woman in Torah who does so. Uh, So reading without lens of liberation is, um, oh okay, what implications does this have for how I view my enemy, the Egyptian? Uh, also, also, uh, Hagar. Is the word for stranger, as in Leviticus nineteen the stranger, the Hagar who resides with you shall be to you as one of your own citizens. you shall love them as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of egypt uh and the this sort of language is used thirty six times, so yeah, the Hagar story is this exempt this just this example of how yeah scripture is is reading towards liberation, okay. One more thing, and then I'll let Tanada go with our second passage. Audrey was asking me last night, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, about who the first people were. And so we had a little discussion about evolution and Genesis and all these sorts of things. And it reminded me of, uh, uh, I had a professor, a philosophy professor at Bethel in Indiana, uh, who did not believe in historical Adam and Eve. And eventually... The denomination pressured the college to write a statement of belief that did believe in a historical Adam and Eve, so that this professor would be forced to quit, which he did. He's doing fine. He's off leading Biologos, which is this wonderful organization about the intersection of science and faith. Uh, Jim Stump, wonderful person. Anyway, um, so there's this like concern in some Christian circles about Adam and Eve were they historical or not, and in general about the whole Old Testament, right? But then you get passages like Galatians 4. Now, Galatians 4 is this extended metaphor by Paul using the Hagar story, the Hagar and Sarah story. And just a tiny bit of context, uh, the Galatian agitators are people who have gone into the church of Galatia and said, you have to follow the entirety of the Torah, specifically male circumcision, in order to be part of the community of God. Paul says, no, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. So he tells this metaphor, uh, starting in Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was conserved by the normal way, but, but the free woman, Sarah, was conceived through the promise. These things are an allegory. The women are the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to slave children. That's Hagar. Um, and then the other one is Sarah. So Paul is like basically saying, Hey, you law followers, you want to act like slave children. Okay. So he, he's again, using very incendiary language to make his point, but here's the verse that people skip over verse 24. These things are an allegory. Now you don't see a lot of uh, belief statements in colleges about, do you believe in a historical Abraham and Sarah? But if you were to go around and say, no, I don't, you probably would get some stones thrown at you, just if you said that you don't believe in historical Adam and Eve. But here's Paul allegorizing the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, to make a theological point. These things are an allegory. Christians did this for a long, 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 long time. When they encountered a story in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, they allegorized it so as to make it point towards Jesus and were willing to say, that doesn't sound a lot like God, but if we turn it into an allegory, now we can make it sound a little bit more like God, which is this whole cruciform lens on scripture. Um, and it's built into the New Testament. It's not a liberal or progressive or 21st century way to bend scripture to make it mean what you want it to mean. The first Christians were doing this a long, 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 long time ago. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's my side. Sorry. So box, I'm burning it down now. Don't worry, I have more.
1: All right, do we have time for one more exploration? Okay, so this one's shorter. This is not easier, but it is uh, Mark 7. Uh, this is kind of a famously problematic passage. Mark 7, 24 through 30. Um, my Bible calls it the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. That's the title imposed on it. Okay, so same thing. Think about this through... The lens of the cruciform hermeneutic hermeneutic and the liberation hermeneutic and what do you come up with uh what do we learn how are we formed um what do you think nine minutes all right we have 10 minutes solve this passage i'm ready (laughs) what and it is interesting that also both times i feel like the the liberation hermeneutic has oddly felt easier. Than the so I, I don't know. I, I think that, that that was expressed both times in the rooms I was in. So I think that is fascinating even because they're layered. But I, I would be curious about why that is. But anyway, thoughts about this one. What came up for you? How did those hermeneutics help you?
4: I mean, I think isn't...
2: for me, the, oh, the, the cruciform one actually made sense because this is one where I felt like I could come in and like, okay, the Jesus that I know wouldn't be like that to somebody. So it takes this kind of bigger picture of, you know, who is Jesus? What is he really like? Would he tell somebody, go away, you're just a dog? And so it allows for that kind of interpretation of there's the air quotes or he's kind of, doing, I think somebody in the group said, you know, you've heard it said, but I say kind of thing going on, that if we didn't have that bigger understanding picture, that cruciform thing. This one would be like, what the heck, you know,
4: it's
0: not very nice.
4: (laughs) I was actually thinking about how difficult I found it to apply cruciform to this, because I think like I've always found it very easy to use that like lens in the Old Testament because it's all like leading to Jesus. When it comes to applying Jesus to Jesus, like I feel like it just kind of cycles around itself um and i like really struggle with that like how do i look at jesus with the lens of jesus like it's already here you know
5: yeah in a similar vein i said that uh this makes me really angry um and again i'll say what i said in the, the small group which is i don't mean to upset anyone by what i'm about to say but this really makes me want to like because of the way i was raised this makes me want to punch jesus in the face because of I called a woman a dog. My grandmother would literally come out of her grave, slap me as hard as she could, and then go back in. Like that. Like there. There's just like, sir, sir. Like, what did you just say? And like, I sort of was left that I couldn't really play with either hermeneutic, hermeneut except to say that her reply is liberating. Like she puts the pushes the power back against him. But I'm still kind of left with, yeah, but why does he like? Where does he come from at all? Like it it leaves me very confused.
1: I had a question about um, the yeah, relationship.
4: Yeah, I just had a quick question about the relationship between um, uh, Cyrenian, Phoenicians and um, Jews. Like, was that a, uh, something that was in play here with this conversation?
1: So, uh, I will say um, there is definitely a cultural divide here. Um, and Part of what's interesting is, so, you know, dogs would have been essentially a slur, but the way in which these two cultures understood what dogs were um, is not the same, which is a fascinating, like they both come at the same idea from very different perspectives. So I just, I want to name that, that even kind of what their, their perception of, of what a dog should have or not is very different. All right, I'm gonna. I, I know we need to wrap up, so I'm gonna say a couple of things. So, one, I chose these two and even this one um, because I think part of thinking about hermeneutics is thinking about the messiness. Uh, I think in the first session, I talked about an article by a Hebrew Bible scholar I love named Ellen Davis, who essentially says that we have to read the Bible with love and with patience and with humility. And these two passages are like the kind of passages that are lifelong. They are the passages that you dig into and dig into. And that's, to me, what formation is. Uh, when I look at this passage and I think about, um, you know, using a hermeneutic of liberation, there's a, there's a lot of work that's been done. And a lot of what is brought up, a couple of people main, is like the woman's reply, the woman as marginal um, to Jesus, because Jesus is a Jewish male, Um, So they, again, look at where, how she is like socially located and they also use their own experiences to think about essentially she sasses Jesus. And so they talk about the way in which it's appropriate for people, particularly when they don't have any other power to use the power of language to like disrupt and undercut and subvert and bring new understandings. So that's fun. That's one of the main ways that like from, from that perspective, this passage is dealt with and you'll notice if you if you look at the same passage in matthew um jesus says for your faith you have been um you know your daughter has been healed." and in this one it's very specifically like what you said even though it would seem to be inappropriate to say this that is what has saved you Like your resistance to what you know to be injustice is what has saved you um so i want to i want to name that here and um I'll let Anthony take the cruciform part. Because, yeah, there's a, there's a lot about who Jesus is here, too. So uh, do you want to just generally wrap us up here?
0: Oh, I'll do my best. A couple of things come to mind. Is it, you know, basically there are two ways they approach the scripture. Is it um, there's something else going on and we're just not privy to it? And that's honestly, that is very close to the cruciform way of looking at things of if you go back to go and, you know, Joshua judges, go and slaughter all the men, women and children. Um, well, maybe there's something else going on, (laughs) um, like, you know, an ancient Near Eastern people are taking their ideas of, uh, conquering land and putting them in the mouth of God. That could be happening. Um, There, you know, is there something else going on with the language and dogs and all that kind of stuff? So that's one way of looking at it. Um, And I would point out if, you know, you've been reading through the book of Mark, we already know that, that Jesus goes into Gentile territory and does miraculous work. Why all of a sudden is he putting up a fuss about this woman? So that asking the question, is there something else going on, is a very cruciform way of looking at things because you're it's not just. I'm trusting my gut. It's, I know Jesus. So what is it that I need to be paying attention to? So there's that approach. There's another approach, which is, did Jesus get this wrong? And that makes us squirmy. Makes me squirmy. But I'll point out two things. And this gets into some big theological questions and a great time to go stuff your face with nachos and watch a, a football game after, you, after we talk about this. Two verses. Number one is Luke two fifty-two. Jesus matured in wisdom and years and in favor with God and with people. The Son of God matured. We have yet to think through the theological implications of that verse. And another one like it, uh, Hebrews 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, He learned obedience from what he suffered. The son of God had stuff to learn? If God stays the same and Jesus reveals what has always been true about the nature of God and God in the flesh has things to learn, what does this mean about God? Okay, have a great week. (laughs) Next week we're going to do more of this. It's uh, disarming Bible bombs. So um, we got you know some of the passages that you all listed. We've got some passages uh, that we want to go through, and we're just going to keep we're going to keep doing this uh, over and over again.
1: Is everybody okay? <laughs> well, quiet. Yeah, that was that was quite the note to end though. I, I knew it was coming, and I was like, "Yep, this is at right at at two fifty nine. Okay, this is, this is perfect." <laughs> Oh, all right, can I pray for us? All right, <laughs> Lord. There is so much that we don't understand and yet which we reach out for, and Lord, we trust that the reaching out is what forms us, that the movement toward you is honored by you and loved by you. I pray, Lord, that you would uh deepen our commitment. Um, to the sacred scriptures as we continue to move through this class please help us to um, have the courage and the faith to interact with this book as complicated as it is more and more and please lord just fill us with faith that the god that we love always and forever looks like jesus in the name of jesus
0: amen amen
1: all right y'all have a good
4: day
0: Hi.
4: Thanks. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Bye, everyone.